Let's uh, let's let's pray. I'm just kidding. That was this is always a way to get people to quiet down. No, I'm still gonna pray. I still that's still a good idea to do before a talk. But you guys, right away, just silence. Uh, yeah, let's let's ask God's help. God, thank you uh, for your grace, which we have just been sitting in in this conference. It's such a gift to hear about your word that comes to us outside of us and heals us in ways that we can't heal ourselves. May that be true now. Uh, as we talk about the pressure in our lives and the grace that keeps on giving. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, my name is, is Davis. I am a, a pastor by day and a husband and dad and chaplain to professional athletes by night. Uh, it's been a unique experience. Uh, it's not something that was on our five-year plan uh, as a pastor. It just kind of came across our radar, my wife and I, uh, and doing this ministry to professional athletes. And uh, I want to share with you today some of our playbook. Um, in other words, what we have learned to kind of bring to these players and their lives uh, and their wives. My, my wife leads a, a Bible study with the wives. Um, and I, I, you'll find, I, I hope, at least what we found in our own lives is that these guys are they're so similar to us. Maybe they have a more concentrated form of what we all have, which is, as we've been talking about in this conference, uh, lots of external pressures, expectations, and measurements that are put on us that do create an internal angst and anxiety uh, that constantly leads us in this place of just wondering where are we at in life, where are we at with God, and and what is the way forward. And so uh, I want to share with you uh, the three real messages that I, that I bring to uh, the, the locker room. Um, and if it's true that pastors only work on Sundays, we really only have three messages as well. We just recycle through. If there's any pastors in here, you can probably relate. So here are my three messages. These are the only ones I have. Uh, but I'm glad to give them over and over again. Uh, the first is uh, a question. And it's actually... You might not know this, but it's, it's the first question that God himself asks in the Bible, in Genesis 3. He asks, where are you? And it's a, I love this. I love that this is God's first question because it's a, it's a locating question. And it's something that, it's not a, a geographic question of, of, of where, uh, but one that reaches in, internally into us and draws us out. Uh, it's a question that God asks that's not for God. Uh, he doesn't need to know where they are. He knows where Adam and Eve are when he asks this question. But it's a, a question for Adam and Eve, and therefore it's a question for us. It's a question that I'd ask you to reflect on. As you even came to this conference this weekend, well, where are you? What are you carrying? What pressures exist in your life? What pressures do you regularly feel? What forms of performance anxiety belong to you? Uh, there's a text chain amongst a group of my friends. A lot of us have young, young kids. And uh, this one was shared very recently. It was a meme called How to Be a Mom in 2023. And uh, let me just read it to you. It says, make sure your children's academic, emotional, psychological, mental, spiritual, physical, nutritional, and social needs are met while being careful 
not to overstimulate, underestimate, improperly medicate, helicopter or neglect them in a screen-free, processed foods-free, plastic-free, body-positive, socially conscious, egalitarian but also authoritative, nurturing but fostering of independence, gently but not overly permissive, pesticide-free, two-story, multilingual home, preferably in a cul-de-sac with a backyard. And I, I love this because it so captures these pressures that you and I experience. Even if you're not a mom in this room, I'm certainly not one, but there's something about reading this that I'm like, I feel so seen by all these expectations, all these external pressures that we just swim in on a daily basis without realizing it's water. This is the water in which we swim. And so uh, the Apostle Paul also locates us with these pressures in 2 Corinthians 1. I, I want to borrow from this chapter uh, amongst these three kind of messages this morning uh, and just see how he talks about pressure in his own life and how that also gives us a roadmap for our own pressures. He says this, We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. I appreciate that the Apostle Paul, a guy who writes a good chunk of our New Testament, is, is helpful in answering God's question of where are you uh, for us. He, he shows us we are under great pressure. Like Paul, uh, in many ways, we experience life as it is. We experience life as a sentence of death. These results that look like, I, I don't know, up from down sometimes. I, f- I feel like everything is caving in all at once. And it's worth asking the question, why? Why is it this way? Why are our lives constantly consisting of so much pressure, so many expectations that you and I feel like we have to measure up to? Uh, a helpful beginning to answer that question has to do with God's second question. Right after he asks, where are you? Does anybody know the second question he asks? Where are you hiding? Have you eaten of the tree of which I told you not to eat? Uh, This, for me, is is another locating um, reality that God is giving us in the beginning of the Bible. I once had a seminary professor assign the first three chapters uh, of the Bible saying, uh, I want you to read this every day, and I want you to journal about it for, I think it was an arbitrary amount of time, like 30 minutes or something. But you have to read Genesis 1 through 3 every day and journal about it. Whole semester. I did not do that. (laughs) But the point still stands that you can do that. There's so much within Genesis 1 through 3 that serves as this grid for us of understanding who we are and why we are and why we feel like we're under so much pressure. But At the very center of the garden, we're told, before sin enters the world, before the fall and all the nasty things that we now know, all the pressures that we experience, we're told, and I think this is God kind of laying his cards on the table very early in the story. He says there's a center of this garden in which he's placed Adam and Eve, and it consists of two things, two trees. One tree is what, he, what we just covered, right? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. But something that we often get wrong about this tree is we think it's just the tree of evil and that they've eaten from this tree of just like I'm running away from God. It's not. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that's the tree of which they choose. The second tree is the tree of life, which, uh, of course, after Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, 
is happy to exit stage left for much of the continuing story in the Old Testament, doesn't it? Much of the Old Testament, in other words, can be summarized under the banner of what does life look like under the knowledge of good and evil. With human beings holding an understanding of that which is good and that which is evil, can they do the good and avoid the evil and thus earn God's favor and thus be in his presence? For any uh, person who went to Sunday school or didn't, I think all of us can answer this question in a way that says, not not well. They, They don't do well under the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, the Old Testament is a story of moving from bad to worse, to exile, to silence from God for 400 years. And, of course, that's not the only story. The Tree of Life actually does make several appearances. It's kind of like a celebrity, hey, what's going on here? Let me fix things. And then the moment human beings are like, thanks, God, that's good. We got it from here. Uh, The Tree of Life kind of exits again, stage left, and basically says, call me when you need me, and I'll come and rectify things. But since you think you've got it, let's see how that goes. And one of my favorite pictures of that, what does life look like under the knowledge of good and evil, which is a shorthanded way of saying what we at Mockingbird love talking about a lot, which is the difference between grace and the law. It's a knowledge of good and evil. What is that if not the law? And it enters the story uh, when Adam and Eve first take of that fruit. But what does it look like? What's, what are some of the pictures that God gives us of life under the law? My favorite is, is God basically saying it's kind of like a horror story. Living under the knowledge of good and evil looks like a horror film. Uh, the, the picture where that comes out is uh, the phrase that we now know as the writing on the wall. This actually comes from an Old Testament uh, prophet story. Does anybody know it? It's in Daniel. Yeah, so in Daniel, you have this king. His name is Belshazzar, and he's throwing this epic frat party. There's like a thousand of his friends who are coming to hang out and having drinking a bunch of wine and stuff. And then in the middle of this party, you get this epic buzzkill to a party, but it's, it turns from party to, to horror film when a hand appears and starts to write on the wall. Let me read what the word says. It says, Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. Now watch his reaction, because this is a picture of what life under pressure looks like. When, when we actually come to terms with what's happening around us, watch the king. He says, As his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. This is a picture of life under the law. When you come to terms with what's actually happening around us, our face becomes flush and our knees begin to knock. The story goes on and Daniel ultimately is going to be the one who comes and interprets. And we hear in Daniel 5, 23 to 27, it says, uh, this is Daniel speaking to the king, you praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And here's what the hand wrote. This is the second time the hand of God has made it. Uh, a showing in the story of the Old Testament, right? What was the first time? Let me know. What was that? The tablets of the law. When God, when God with his own hand writes out the Ten Commandments. That's the last time we saw the hand of God appear and write. And the second time 
is here as he sends this hand. And what's the message? You have been weighed on the scales, and you have been found wanting. What a statement of what the law ultimately says to us, right? That, that the reason that the king was terrified, right? I mean, just picture yourself in his shoes. Like, you're throwing this party and this epic hand appears. Why didn't he just celebrate? Why wasn't he like, this is the coolest party trick anybody has ever seen? Instead, instantly, he becomes afraid. Because he, he, doesn't, he actually doesn't even, even need Daniel to interpret this. His fear shows it all, that he knew what the message was, that you have been measured on the scales and found wanting. You are not okay in and of yourself. The hand of God has appeared, and what is it doing? It's pointing. It's pointing at you, and it's pointing at me. It's pointing at us, and it's saying, you're not enough. In the land of uh, the athletes, <laughs> this, this pointing hand comes about usually from top down, right? Who, who knows who this individual is? Seven-time Super Bowl winner, Tom the Goat Brady. Uh, after his return from retirement and his very human season uh, that he experienced as a buccaneer, uh, I just pulled this, this clip a year ago when I was teaching a class on these very things. And it was just fascinating to see this, this outstretched hand as he's talking to his of- offensive linemen. And, and what are you doing if you're an offensive lineman being pointed at by Tom the Goat Brady, right? <laughs> what are you experiencing? Face is probably a little flush. Knees are knocking a little bit. Uh, I remember Stephen A. Smith at the time was like, what, what possibly could Tom be saying to these guys? Stop letting them tackle me, right? Like there's not, there's not a lot of messages that are going to promote results in this environment. And yet we continue to say the same things over and over again, thinking that we have the powers to affect the change that we long to see by employing some form of the law. This is one reason I, I absolutely adore Mockingbird and what I think all of us are trying to accomplish here is make... God's two words available. Make God's two words accessible as a roadmap for your very life. Uh, the, the book Law Gospel that David Zoll and uh, Will McDavid wrote, I think, do you guys still have copies upstairs or they already sell out? I don't know. You have to go and see. That's an invitation. But, but listen to this quote from that. He says, We can better understand our relationship to the law of God, the capital L law of God, by examining our relationship with little L law, because the psychological impact of them is often the same. The little L law, thou shalt be beautiful, or thou shalt be successful, is often more measurable than the law of God, as well as more salient in people's lives. That is, the pressure to be well-liked or valued at work is often stronger than the pressure to be a perfect person, and while holiness is usually invisible, things like salary, number of social media followers, and body weight can be easily measured. So what's he saying here? The, the capital L law of God, the Ten Commandments, or the writing on the wall that says, you've been measured by me on the divine scales and found wanting. We, we can actually see the ways that we, like Tom Brady, are constantly trying to tell others, and ultimately ourselves, to meet some standard around us. Uh, when, when Tom actually was interviewed after that game, he says, this is a game of earning it, and we're simply not doing it. What's the solution? Well, he says, well, we just need to look in the mirror and figure out why. 
good luck, Tom. Good luck. And, and then we can look back now on the season with the 2020 hindsight and go, how'd that work, right? Clearly, there's something more than just an internal solution to these problems that ail us. I think uh, I still have yet to find, even amongst the hymns, a, a more astute song. Martin Luther would be proud, in fact. Uh, that was written that captures what it's like to be under this little L law in our day-to-day lives. And of course, I'm speaking of surface pressure from the movie Encanto. You guys have uh, likely seen this. If, if you haven't, uh, you now have homework this weekend to watch this movie. Uh, I, I want to just read to you a few, a, few, a few of these lyrics because they're so profound and they so capture all of us. Uh, in, in answer to the question, where are you, right, that God asks us. She says, I'm the strong one. This is the older sister, Lucia, talking to her younger sister. I'm not nervous. I'm as tough as the crust of the earth is. I move mountains, I move churches, and I glow because I know what my worth is based on external standards that I'm meeting. But, she says, under the surface, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can't be of service. A flaw or a crack, that straw in the stack that breaks the camel's back. What breaks the camel's back? It's pressure. Like a drip, drip, drip. Whoa. <laughs> pressure like a, that'll tip, tip, tip till you just go pop. Whoa, oh, oh. Who am I if I can't run with the ball if I fall to pressure? This, friends, is our daily experience. It is what Flame was speaking of last night with the old Adam and his death rattle. Even for us who belong to Christ, who have trusted in him, that old Adam is still screeching at us, clamoring for us to meet external standards that are put on us and trying to tell us to get to God via the law or whatever external standards we might have for ourselves or others. We are, as Banksy so eloquently captured, thinking that we are fighting the law and overcoming it. But we can't even write the sentence before the law comes down on us and lets us know that we have not won against our fight over the law. Which brings us to message number two that I like to bring uh, to these players, which is you need to understand the math of the gospel. You need to understand how it functions in your life, and you need to see how it really is the answer to the questions that we are regularly asking. But to quote again the the theologian Lucia, I think that's her name, and Encanto, yeah? Sounds right. If you say it with confidence, you'll believe me. It's Lucia. Uh, She says, but wait, it's this fascinating moment in the middle of the song where like the, the, the sky kind of clears and everything becomes radiant and pink, and she's riding a unicorn, and there's this sense of relief over her face as she's talking about these pressures and underneath the surface how much of a wreck she is. The, the, the clouds clear, and she says, but wait, if I could shake the crushing weight of expectations, would that free up some room for joy or relaxation? Or simple pleasure? The answer, of course, is yes. Uh, the, the mechanism, though, the equation, the math of how you get there is important. And notice how she, she's, well, Manuel Miranda is kind of scratching the surface at something. He's not far from the kingdom and writing this song. He says, if I could shake the weights of these expectations, how, 
How do you then do that? I think the maybe most clarifying place to do that, where you have all of the elements, comes to us in the New Testament in John 8. I just want to read this section to you. I mean, really, you have all the dynamics at play here, right? Watch. It says, Teacher, they're coming to Jesus. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law of Moses, capital L law, we are commanded to stone such women. Now, what do you say? That's an important sentence. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground at this, Those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. It's one of my favorite parts of the story, right? The more time you exist under the weight of pressure, the more time you start to see. I do not measure up to these standards. So it's the older ones who depart the scene first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Isn't this fascinating? This is the third time we've seen the hand of God now extend and write. Right? The first time was the law being inscribed by the very hand of God when it was given on the stone tablets to Moses. The second time was when Belshazzar's knees were quaking and he heard, your kingdom no longer belongs to you. You've been measured on the scales. You've been found wanting. Now we see the finger of God outstretched as he's hunched over in front of a woman who is accused by the law, but we're not told what he wrote. Or are we, right? This is one of the best parts of this passage. We totally are told what he was writing. It doesn't matter what was in the sand. We get to hear directly from his own mouth the very words of God. Now, what do you say? And Jesus has a very personal word that he's writing with the finger in the sand. He says, neither do I condemn you. But how? Because we, we know that God is not one who can shirk at sin and what's taken place. The, the law itself was not written by an enemy. The law itself was written by God, and it's holy and it's good. It's good to know what he's like. Well, we'll soon see in the story that the reason Jesus can say, neither do I condemn you, is because I'm the one who's going to ultimately, like the stone tablets when they are shattered on the ground out of anger by Moses when he sees the people sinning, Jesus ultimately is going to say, I'm going to be shattered like those tablets. But not out of anger, out of love, out of a substitutionary love, one that says, it isn't upon you to meet these standards. Actually, your entrance into this comes about through your failing to meet these standards. The oldest ones in the room who get this, right, at the scene, are they going to be the first ones to go, oh, I think I see what's happening here. I'm unable to meet these standards, but there's one who's able to say to me, I don't condemn you. Why? Because I'm going to be condemned in your place. The math of the gospel is an equation of replacement. You are not condemned because Jesus himself will be condemned for you. What then... Does this have to do with athletes? How does this play in the realm of a major league locker room? How does this play in the realm of any form of athleticism? 
for you Twin Cities folks, you know this is a big weekend. Why? We got the Twin Cities Marathon. Any runners? One of you. Oh, man, I was about to say my people, but then you, you outed yourself. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, best of luck to you. I, w- I will never run a marathon. Um, you can tell. Yes, the dad bod is real. Uh, and I'm just not a runner. I just can't do it. But my, I have a very, one of my closest friends. He ran last year in the Twin Cities Marathon. It wasn't his first one. Very, very competitive guy. And, uh, and he got an injury at mile seven. And he realized he wasn't going to finish this race. And he had never not finished a marathon before. He had never not finished a, a, an athletic event that he had trained for until this moment. And I, and I urged him to write down several months later. He had to process this, but I, I think it was the best thing that's ever happened to him spiritually. It's better than completing 20 marathons, and he's the type that would do that. I don't know if, if that's up your stride. <laughs> uh, but listen to Josh's words. He says, as he's coming to grips with the fact that he's not going to finish, deeper and deeper I spiraled as I limped for what seemed like a marathon in itself. And who were all these happy people on the side of the road with their stupid signs? <laughs> I now know with certainty that the press here for booster sign does not work, at least not for me. And in fact, it's more of a condemning sign than anything else. But as I turned the corner, I saw my daughter waiting for her dad. She's two years old. And she was holding this sign. It said, run, daddy, run. Which... If you're about to not finish a marathon, how are you doing in the midst of that sign? Being held by your own daughter, right? Talk about little L law. But what happens next is what makes this story so compelling and what makes this story our story. He says, in terms of the race, my daughter, she didn't have a clue what was going on. She wasn't wearing a stopwatch to track my splits. She was just looking for her dad, who she loves. As I stepped off the road and limped towards her, she threw her sign on the ground. Then she trotted towards me and gave me a hug. My daughter was oblivious that race officials put DNF, did not finish, next to my name. If you asked her what the winning time was that day, she wouldn't be able to answer. None of that mattered to her. He goes on, I didn't realize I was hearing from Jesus that day, and I especially didn't think he was answering my angry questions, but he was. He was there at that moment when my daughter threw down her sign and hugged me. What a picture of the equation of the gospel. What a picture of the way that Jesus takes the signs that we are under, that we feel the pressures that are coming in, and he throws them on the ground, never to be picked up again. This is the math of the gospel. It's what Romans, I think, comes to a head to in Romans 6 when Paul is able to say, the the way you get out of sin mastering you, the way that it's no longer a slave driver over you is by no longer being under the law, but by being under grace. Or to borrow again from 2 Corinthians 1, uh, under that sentence of death that Paul was describing earlier, right? The pressing pressures that are around all of us. He says, indeed, again, we had, we had received the sentence of death, but this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. That is the equation, friends, of the gospel, that you are justified by the work of another. 
and that you are now under the banner of his grace because he stood in your place and now says, neither do I condemn you. That sign is on the ground, never to be picked up again. Which does bring us to kind of the last message that I like to bring into the locker room, and that is that you're, you're just not the hero. And there are few freeing, more freeing words than to actually believe that in your heart of hearts. Uh, I'm a huge Jack Black fan. Uh, there's a few people from my church that know this. I like to put them on the screen a lot at church. Uh, this was a recent video that he released on the TikToks. Uh, he's wearing a Superman outfit. This is Nacho Libre back in tights. Come on, people. This is amazing. <laughs> 20 years since we've seen this. Let's go. Uh, it's a very short clip, and he's, he's kind of humming along the Superman theme song, and the camera's kind of going around him as he's got his arms outstretched, and he's humming the song. But then he keeps saying to the guy who's behind him, who turns out is his dad, <laughs> and his dad is just waving the cape back and forth, and he's going, faster, dad, come on, faster, dad. Uh, at best, when you and I center ourselves as the hero of our stories, we look like this foolish video of Jack Black telling our dad to wave our cape a little bit faster. I, I feel humbled by this sometimes when I think about this from a spiritual standpoint of like, how often do my prayers look like me coming to God? Be like, come on, dad, wave my cape a little bit faster in my life. Lord, help me. But that's best case scenario, I think, when it comes to us being the hero. Uh, We hear from the prophet Jeremiah, very famous uh, verse. He says, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. That's 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 an encouraging verse in and of itself. As a standalone, you put it on the screen, you're like, oh, that's good to hear today. (laughs) I just wanted to hear that. Uh, It becomes even more encouraging, though, when you ask the question, why? Why shouldn't I seek great things for myself. And uh, for me, this was one of the reasons that I I took on uh, the chaplaincy of wanting to work with professional athletes because for me, I'm an achievement-oriented person. I get the desire to run a marathon, any of these, even though I'll never do that. Uh, But I do want, I'm achievement-oriented. I want to do things. I want to orchestrate life as I see fit. And one of the ways that the gospel, I mean, there are many facets to that diamond that is the gospel, but the one that continues to, to blind me in a good way is this idea that God is going to tell such a better story than you can ever orchestrate for your life. It's so freeing to actually see and believe that. And when we don't, our lives, uh, they do actually start to look like uh, what you saw in the series Full Swing. Did anybody catch this uh, a couple months ago? fascinating watch of, of getting behind the real lives of professional golfers. And I, I think everything you see in that, um, this, this series, is so transferable to all of sports and how much you can begin to see, wow, these people are exactly like me <laughs> in terms of their anxieties, their pressing pressures, they're constantly feeling uh, weighed and found wanting. And where I saw this, uh, I think the clearest in this series and, and the, the reason God is saying, don't seek great things for yourself, is because it's horrible when you do. It's horrible when you think that you are the master of your destiny. It's just crushing. And the guy who captures that well in the series is Brooks Kepka. He's about to get married. He's got this beautiful fiance. They have a house that could fit 
my house and my neighbor's house and his neighbor's house and my church and the churches we've planted, all inside of this house. It's just this mega mansion. And his wife's talking to him about the wedding and the scene. You know, they're just kind of doing the documentary thing where they're just interviewing them in their real life. And she's asking him questions about the wedding, and, and he just has this deadpan stare. He's been under, underperforming on the golf course, and that's all he can think about. He's just trapped in his own body. And you see it. He looks like Belshazzar with this face that is flushed. And he cannot will himself out of that cursed feeling. And he's interviewed about that, and he, and he says as much. He says, when I was playing great, mentally I was in a great place. Because of course, right? But now, Jenna, his fiance, will be talking to me, and, and I'll be thinking about my golf swing. I can't turn off because, like, it can consume you. And who hasn't felt some ounce of being consumed by the very thing that we're trying to strive at? Some standard that we're trying to meet, either at work or even relationally. And uh, what I like to often tell athletes is that this is the worst place to be because uh, if you're doing well, it will swell your head with pride. And that's actually more dangerous than where Kepka's at. Because Kepka's at this place where it's finally like, God, help me. I need something more than what I'm able to accomplish for myself. But when you underperform, it'll crush you and lead you to despair. And you'll constantly ping pong back and forth between those things. I think this is, uh, it comes to a head for us if you have any ounce of trying to read uh, the scriptures. Uh, I did not really grow up uh, in the church as much. It was more of a Christmas and Easter phenomenon. But as I started to read this, as I started to come into ministry, uh, I resonate deeply with this meme of how the Bible is typically presented. Now, if you can't see it, it's a kind of an unfolding timeline of the Bible. And on the left, you have Adam and Eve. But it gives you a little caption of how we often interpret the Bible. And it says, it's, everything's how-to, right? If the story's about you, everything's how-to. How to avoid making bad decisions. That's the story of Adam and Eve. <laughs> Noah, how to follow instructions. Yeah, that makes sense. Joseph, how to be nice to mean people. Right? <laughs> Moses, how to lead whiny people. Samson, how to not lose your superpowers. That might be my favorite one. Uh, David and Goliath, how to be brave. For boys. <laughs> Esther, how to be brave for girls. And even the story of Jonah, how to be obedient. Well, what does the cross come, become under this lens? How to become extra obedient is what that message becomes. What a wild interpretation of God himself dying in our place. But instead, the, whoever created this, I've I got to give credit where it's due. I don't actually know who that is. So if you're listening, show yourself. Uh, the Bible, though, is, is unique because it shows us how to read itself. It shows us that it's one story that is progressing. It's crescendoing from when God first made the world and his, his human beings thought, you know what, I think we got this. Well, I, we don't really need you. And then God set out this rescue plan to rescue them. And everything's crescendoing to that point where Jesus himself is going to enact it, where he's going to become the superhero of the story by surprising everybody via death. But it's not just a crescendo of left to right. The story itself becomes interpreted through this cross. When you start to see this whole story, if it's actually about Jesus, he can be found everywhere. And the closest thing that we Protestants have to a pope, a.k.a. Tim Keller, who, who passed away this year, 
Uh, he, says it, he, says it as, he says it like this. Once you know all the lines of all the stories and all the climaxes of all the themes and how they converge on Christ, you simply can't see, you can't not see, that every text is ultimately about Jesus. Uh, a friend of mine puts it like this, that Jesus is the, is the who, he's the answer. He's the who and the how of every question that's asked in the Old Testament. Think about that. Every time, the, the, especially the wisdom literature, loves to, who is this king of glory coming up from battle, right? His name is Jesus, and the battle is not the one you expect. His sword is the tree of life that ultimately became a tree of death so that it would be offered to us as life. Seeing him as he presents himself to be. This is what Lucia is driving us to, right? The freedom of... It's one of my favorite definitions of what freedom actually looks like in our lives. Is that you're just going about whatever task is in front of you, not consumed with the outcome, but you're just free to do well and to suck sometimes because that's going to be all of our lives until we see Jesus face to face. And I don't know, maybe we'll suck some in heaven, but probably suck less uh, at whatever task is before us. Uh, but you just start to see that, like, uh, my favorite way to see this now is, like, every text is about him. You can't overdo this. That's what's so incredible about this. Even in Second Corinthians 1, we start to see the shape of Paul's life who is so close to Jesus. Like the, the story of the, the woman who was accused. Remember it said, everyone's gone, and there was just Jesus standing there with the woman. That, that's a lot of what Paul's letters are like. They're not just telling us how to live in the world. They're, they're putting on display in new ways the shape of love. And when he says that about himself as he's writing the Corinthian church, he says as much, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. Why can he say that? Because he's derivative in his storytelling of the greatest distress. The distress that is our very salvation and our ultimate comfort. And to see Jesus is the ultimate form of self-forgetfulness. You know, uh, last night when Dave was quoting Daryl Strawberry, I I felt a a significant form of pressure. Because I had already included him in my talk. (laughs) But then I realized, oh, he just, he just saved me a bunch of work. I don't have to tell you who he is or what happened to him. I can just tell you when he came to St. Paul, he, he was a wreck. But that freedom that came about from friendship and, and no longer looking at his own belly button on the field, it led him to this, the most profound words you've ever heard. He says, St. Paul brought me back to life. He does mean the city, but we've been reading a lot of St. Paul today, so we can say these words. It made me see better. It made me understand. You're not that darn important. Enjoy this while we got a chance. I don't want to be a superstar anymore. I just want to be. Or to uh, maybe quote Jeremiah 45 again, but using the DSV. This is the Daryl Strawberry version. We're just not that darn important. (laughs) And that's good news. Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, thank you for your word, which just brings us a better word than what we can bring to ourselves. Thank you that you have located us, but that you have not left us as we are. Instead, you have set us free with a better word, one that says, I don't condemn you. May we live in light of this freedom, uh, not out of our own efforts, but by the never-changing mercy that is found in the cross and in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, friends.